KMTT, Kimitzion Tetzet Torah. You are listening to the Erev Shabbat program, Erev Shabbat Kodesh Parashat Kitisa, Tetzain Adarishon. I'm your host, Jonathan Snowbell. The Erev Shabbat program is Lilui Nishmat Shlomo Yosef Ben Chaim Shmuel. The ultimate challenge of the Darshan, the one who gives the sermons, is to somehow tie up the events of the week that are not unrelated to the Parsha, to, to the Parsha. Uh, this week, and with a slight confession, even today, because when I record the Arab Shabbat program, it's not yet Arab Shabbat. But today was Purim Katan, and tonight is Shushan Purim Katan. And in that sense, it's incumbent upon the Darshan to connect the parasha to the events of the week, i.e. Purim. This sounds like a very difficult feat. However, keep in mind that on a regular year, if there's no leap year, then Kitisa will typically fall out immediately after Purim, and it's very appropriate to be discussing Purim and Kitisa together. So probably, if I looked around in the Drasha books, I would find Drashat connecting Purim and Kitisa. Nonetheless, whether this is original, because nobody else said it before, or it's not original, but I didn't read it anywhere else, and we'll try to connect Purim and Parashat Kitisa. And Parashat Kitisa, ultimately, when we say Parashat Kitisa, there are, there are many topics in Parashat Kitisa. When we say to a Jew, Parashat Kitisa, their first reaction is Chet Egel. The tragedy of Chet Egel, the questions that Chet Egel cause any Jew to ask themselves, how can this nation that just saw the ten plagues, Kriya Yamsuf, Matan Torah, God revealing himself, to the nation, how can they go to the lowest level of idolatry? How could they sink there? And this is a question which challenges us and disturbs us every year when we read Parashat Kitisa and we and we delve into this issue. The Midrash, of course, that connects Matan Torah to Purim and eventually we will attempt to connect Chet Egel then to Purim. Is the famous Midrash in Masachat Shabbat regarding the Kabbalat HaTorah in the time of, of Matan Torah. It says that Bnei Yisrael stood at the base of the mountain. However, the Torah uses the word B'Tachtit, at the bottom of the mountain, but Tachtit could also mean literally underneath. They stood underneath the mountain, and the, and the Gemara says, He raised, God, as it was, raised the mountain above B'nai Israel and threatened them that if they accept the Torah, then good, and if they don't accept the Torah, that will be the place of their burial. God will smite them with the mountain, and they will be buried right there. 
the implication of the Midrash, that B'nai Israel in the time of Matan Torah, were forced to accept the Torah upon themselves. This, of course, raises Tosfot's ire, and he says, what are we talking about? We're, we're all brought up with the concept that B'nai Israel said, they were willing partners in Kabbalat Torah, and Tosfot answers what he answers. The Gemara continues to say, Hadar kiblu However, later on, the Jews accepted it upon themselves from free will in the time of Achashverosh, i.e. Purim. And the Gemara quotes the Pasuk, they, they, they fulfilled what they had already previously accepted. They accepted the Torah now as it was. They, they fulfilled the Torah out of free will. What they did not do in the time of Matan Torah, where they were forced to accept the Torah, here they are accepting the Torah out of free will. The classic explanation of this Midrash, of course, is not to take the Midrash literally, that the mountain was literally lifted over their heads and they were literally threatened with death by the weight of the mountain if they would not accept the Torah, but rather the type of situation that was Matan Torah, such an overpowering situation, God showing Himself, revealing Himself to B'nai Israel, such an awesome manner, left no room for B'nai Israel to question whether they were accepting this, why they were accepting this. It was just that they were accepting it. It was a fact. God was there. God was revealed. He was giving us the Torah. We were accepting it. There was nothing to question or doubt. It was a fait accompli. This force, the force of this acceptance is not only from the perspective of God, but it's also from the perspective of B'nai Israel. It's not only the force of the acceptance that God revealed Himself in such an awesome way that B'nai Israel were left no choice, but if we take it one step further, perhaps B'nai Israel were not even ready. Let's get, we'll get back to that point momentarily. In contrast, if God revealed Himself in such an awesome manner in the time of Matan Torah, in the time of Achashverosh, the Megillah, there's no mention of God. Everything seems to happen in a natural way. It is easy for one to push God out of the picture there. And the Jews realizing the hand of God and looking for the hand of God, they institute a holiday in which they praise God and thank God for saving them. And this is Hadar Kiblu Abimea Chashverosh, that they accepted it from free will in the time of Achashverosh, in a time where they weren't forced by God's revelation to see God and to notice God. They sought out God, and they found God in a miracle that seemed to perhaps not be a miracle at all. And that's accepting God 
without being forced. It's one thing to accept God when He reveals Himself in all His might and glory at Har Sinai. It's another thing in Persia to see God in what seems to be an interesting turn of events which doesn't need, necessitate God's intervention. That's the classic interpretation. What I alluded to earlier is perhaps another interpretation. The force at Matan Torah is not only a function of God's revelation, but it's also a function of the readiness or the capability of B'nai Israel to accept the Torah and the meaning of the Torah at the time of Mamad Har Sinai. And this brings us to Chet HaEgel. The Midrash teaches us when B'nai Israel were crossing Yam Suf, it was not an obvious thing that B'nai Israel should be saved and the Mitzrim should be drowned. The Midrash says that the Satan came to God and said, Halalu of the Halalu of Those, the Egyptians, are idol worshippers, and those, the Israelites, B'nai Israel, are also of Avodazara. Why save them and drown them? What's the difference? They're both idol worshippers. And in fact, the Midrash goes on to say that God has to distract the Satan with Iov because he can't give an answer, as it was, to the Satan. And he has to distract him so he can save B'nai Israel and demolish the Egyptians because on that claim of the Satan, that Halalu of Devo and Halalu of Devo there's no answer to the Satan. And the, the Satan has to be distracted with something else. B'nai Israel are idol worshippers. They are not ready for this new revelation that God has given them, this new religion. And this is shown time and time again. Whether it's that Midrash, whether it's Chet HaEgel, a mere 40 days after the most ultimate revelation in history of God, whether it's B'nai Israel throughout the time of the Shoftim, all the way to Chorban Bait Rishon, B'nai Israel do not seem ripe for accepting what the Torah is demanding of them. They do not seem ready. And in that sense, the Torah is forced upon them. Not in the sense only that the revelation was so awesome and so mighty that they had no choice but to accept it, but in the sense that they were not prepared to accept it from where they were standing. Their maturity and their ripeness was just not there. And they were not ready and they were not capable of accepting what the Torah demanded of them. And therefore, 40 days later, they sin at Chet HaEgel. And as we said, their history afterwards 
is not always brighter. There are better times, there are worse times, but there are worse times for a long time. As we said, Tukufot HaShoftim, and for many years throughout the king's periods, certainly the majority within the kingdom of, the northern kingdom of Israel, and for many years also in the southern kingdom of Judah. B'nai Israel are not ready. And somehow, at the time of Achashverosh, and this is a, a Midrash also, which reflects this idea, that by the time Bayi Cheney comes along, the Yetzer of Avodah Zarah doesn't exist within Am Yisrael, they are more ready for the message of the Torah. And this perhaps is the meaning of Hadar Kiblobi Mechashurosh. And we see this in Chazal, where Chazal talk about that Chachamim or Mivatel, the Yetzer of Avodah Zarah, that by Cheney in our history, though it's still a pagan time in the world, does not appear in Jewish terms to be a time of idol worshipping. Certainly not as much as Bayit Rishon is as we see in Tanakh. In this sense, Hadar Kiblu Abimech HaShverosh, from, their, from the perspective of the Jewish people, they are more ready, they are ripe, they are prepared for accepting what the Torah demands of them. This idea reflects itself in another issue, and that is the issue of Chipazon. We are told time and time again throughout the Torah that Bnei Yisrael left Mitzrayim bechipazon, in a hurry. And we are told in Chazal that the hurry was that Bnei Yisrael had gone down to the almost the lowest level of Tumah, Memtet Sharei Tumah, and had they gone down any lower, they would never have been able to come out of there. And God had to take them out in a hurry to make sure that they didn't sink any further down. But in that sense, Bnei Israel did not were not prepared for Gula. They were not ready for Gula. As opposed to that, Yeshayahu Navi tells us about the future Gula, the future redemption. You will not go out You will not go out in a hurry. If Bnei Israel, in the time of Yitziat Mitzrayim, are an unripe fruit was picked off the tree, Bechipazon, Bnei Israel, in the time of the future Geula, is a ripe fruit that's picked off the tree at the right time. And at that time, Bnei Israel are ready for Geula, they can internalize the gula, and they can act appropriately when the gula comes, and not turn to idol worshiping, and not make mistakes as they did in the time of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. At this point in the program, we will turn uh, to Rav Tavori. This week. Yutet Adar is the yard site of Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Tendler, who was a Ram, a Rosh Yeshiva, in Yeshiva Shabbenu Yaakov Yosef for many years, and passed away 
in Tavshin Mem on Yutasadar. In a way, I feel a little uncomfortable to speak about Rav Tendler because I really know little about his personal biography. I don't know when he was born, where he was born. It reminds me of a time when Rav Soloveitchik was Masbid, one of the Rashi Yeshiva at Yeshiva University, Rav Fishman. And he got up at the Hesped and he said, sometimes you understand intuitively who someone is. You meet him for the first time and you know that you share a certain past with him and indeed a certain destiny with him. He mentioned this about Rav Fishman and he said, I don't know where he learned, where he was brought up, but I do know that he, I felt that he had the same derech as I did, the same goals, the same aspirations that I did. My choice of Rav Tendler for this week is because of my personal connection with Rav Tendler. I learned in his shir in Yeshiva Sabinu Yaakov Yosef many, many years ago. What I remember most distinctly and the reason that I wanted to discuss Rabbi Tendler is because he just exuded Avas HaTorah. The love of Torah, the enjoyment of saying the Shir, the enjoyment of Chidush, whether it be in Lamdis, in Gemara, in Chumash, or even in Mili de Alma, in mundane things, was a special joy in his life. And you see, you, you could sense his involvement with Torah in all areas. I remember at the end of a school year, one year, the tests on secular subjects were going on, and there was no requirement to come to learn. But Rabbi Tanler said, I'm going to give shir anyway. Whoever wants to come will come. Down on the first floor of the building, he said shir. Three or four students came, and he said shir like there was a, f- a room filled with students. Students used to walk into the building to become get early for the secular tests and some walked in and peeked into the room and saw what we were doing and he said that, and they used to walk out immediately because they saw we were learning, they walked out. So Rabbi Tandler on the spot said, now I understand the Mishnah. The Mishnah says, Shnaim shiyoshim Two people who sit and learn together so you sense the Shekhinah is there. But if two people sit and they do not learn, then it becomes a conglomerate of jokers, a Moshe of Leitzin. So the obvious question is that the contrast is too sharp. If two people learn, then you assume the Shekhinah is there. If they don't learn, the Shekhinah is not there. Why does it already become a Moshe of Leitzin? He said, today I understood it. When two people sit and learn, we had such a small group learning, People walked in and saw us learning, they immediately walked out. So who's left? Who stays there? The Shechina. So a few people learn, and the Shechina's there. But if they... But if they're not learning, then all those people that peeked into the room, they'll come in to join, and it'll automatically become a Moshe of Leitzim. But he wanted to be there with the Shechina Shora. He wanted to be there with that small group that learned... And it seemed 
that nothing else in the world was very important. When I say I don't know where he learned, it's perhaps because of a faulty memory, but generally when I learned by Rabbanim, you always sense who and where they learned because they quote the people that they learned from. When you heard a shir from Rav Gusman, for example, you knew that Rav Gusman learned by the Shari Yosha by Rav Shimon. He used to quote Rav Shimon. A person who learned by Rav Salavechik and quotes Rav Salavechik all the time. When people who learned in almost any yeshiva, they quote the people from the Mir will quote Rav Chaim Shmolevitz. I don't remember Rav Tendler quoting his Rabbanim. I do remember him learning using Achronim that no one ever heard of. When we learned Masechus Gitten, he had two books on his table that he used. Avasiyon, Machane Yisrael and Gitten, Svarim that I think are not that well known in the yeshiva world, and he used them a lot. But I remember his own intuitive thinking on many sugyas, and to this day I can repeat some of the shiurim that he said in those days. When we got to the sugya of Afkinu Rabbanon Kedushin Minei, we were learning Gitten Daflamet Gimel. And that's the famous Gemara that says the Chachamim have the power to take away Kedushin. Rabbi, Te- Rabbi Tendler, in his inimitable style, a person who was known in Yeshiva for a specific style, he always walked around with a, a cigar, he always walked around with a joke, with a, with a story. And he used to come and say in his style, I don't believe it. How could it possibly be that Chachamim could take away Kedushin? He said, let's say a person was married for 20 years. And then the Chachamim, for whatever reason, in the Gemara, Bittul Hagiat, whatever the case may be, Chacham would take away the Kedushin. He says, I don't believe it. You mean this woman was not married for 20 years? If now she is... Not, can she now marry a Kohen? She was never divorced. So could she marry a Kohen? Are the relatives not forbidden to the, to the couple that had once been married? Of course, now I know that Rishonim in Ksubas raised the question. There's a long discussion about this in a sefer called Marcheshes. But I just remember how Rabbi Tender attacked the sugya on his own, with his own understanding with a tremendous belief in the power of learning Torah by yourself. He used to make many, many incisive comments on Chumash, and what I said, Mili Alma, but even what we call Mili Alma, mundane things, don't forget the Gemara says, even the mundane conversations of Tamri Chachamim require analysis. He used to explain all kinds of very, very clever ideas on Chumash on Friday, and he used to tell stories in connection with those Divrei Torah. One Friday, I remember that he said, please stop me if I told you this already. Whenever anybody tells you to stop them if you heard it already, my advice would be, don't do that. The person enjoys telling the story, let him tell it again, Chazara is okay. But I was in very 
good terms with Rabbi Tendler at the time. I also was young and perhaps with a little bit impulsive to do things I shouldn't have done. So Rabbi Tendler said, interrupt me if I say, said this already. So I interrupted him. So he looked at me and said, how do you know that you heard this story from me? Perhaps you do recall the story, but you heard it from someone else. So I told him, I remember distinctly that you told the story and I told it over to my father in your name. A story, a vart, an idea. So he said in a very plaintive tone to me, why do you not tell your father my chidushim? Why do you tell him the stories? The stories and all those divrei Torah of Friday were only a means to get to a bigger connection, to the connection of true Avasatora, the connection of the Shi'urim that he gave. And isn't this a complaint that many, many Rabbadim and many, many Rosh Yeshiva will have, that after Me'av Esrim, what do we really recall? We recall a story, a song, an incident that occurred, do we really remember the chidushim that we heard over the years? To the best of my knowledge, Rav Tendler did not leave Ksavim. I don't know of a sefer that he left. And today, his memory will be remembered so fondly and so lovingly by so many students, by so many Talmidim over the years at, at RJJ, and they'll tell you many, many ideas, many thoughts, many stories about Rabbi Tendler, but I question how many people will be able to say chidushim that he said. Sometimes a person's legacy is found in his svarim. Rabbi Tendler's legacy is found among his students, those thousands of students that he taught over the years who get together, as I've done on various occasions, with Talmidim, and recount the ideas, the stories, the Divrei Torah that we heard from Ibi Yitzhak Isaac Tendler. His legacy is also found in his children. In a generation where it was very difficult to bring up children in the spirit of Torah and mitzvahs. Let's remember, schools, yeshivas, were not that common. The religious atmosphere of America in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s was weak, to put it mildly. And Rabbi Tendler had the privilege of having children, some of whom are world famous. Rabbi Moshe David Tendler, the Rosh Hashiva biologist, son-in-law of Rav Moshe Feinstein, Rav and Mansi, Tamid Chacham, his brother, Rav Yosef Tendler, a Rebbe at Ner Yisrael for many years, another brother, Rav Shalom Tendler, who was, who is Rosh Hashiva in Los Angeles for many years. In such a generation, to bring up such a family connected to Torah Mitzvahs, becoming each one special in their own areas, in their own fields, required tremendous Mesiras Nefesh and also Siyata Deshmaya. Rabbi Tendler used to cre- credit the fact 
that he was in the yeshiva in Rabbi Yaakov Yosef and that yeshiva helped him educate his children. In that respect, he showed tremendous hakara satova to the yeshiva. He used to talk about Mr. Bunim. Mr. Bunim was the guiding spirit of yeshivas Rabbi Yaakov Yosef. In a certain sense, he was a sponsor of Torah in America in many areas. A close friend of Rabbi Cutler, whose kochos were maybe divided among other institutions as well, but he was Mr. Rabbi Yaakov Yosef. He was the Balabas who kept the place going. And I remember Rabbi Tendler speaking about Mr. Bunim, how grateful we have to be to him for building this yeshiva. And because of this yeshiva, the Talmidim who went to that yeshiva, to Yeshiva Shabbat Yaakov Yosef, were able, many of them, to withstand the general culture found outside the streets of New York and become true B'nai Torah. Rabbi, some of Rabbi Tendler's uh, chidushim will uh, be well known by his students. I'd like to say one or two of them that I remember. They show a different style of interpretation, but sometimes you learn halachas from it, sometimes you learn ideas from it. When Yosef argued with his brothers, and the brothers say that they did not steal the Gavia. Yosef accused them of stealing the Gavia. So Yos- they said to Yosef, Anybody of your slaves that will, it will be found by them should die, but we will be slaves if they're found by us. Gamanachnu we also will be slaves. The person who is found should die and we should be slaves. Moshe's, Yosef's response was, You're right. Whoever, by, whoever I find it by, he'll be a slave. That's not what the brothers suggested at all. The brothers said, whoever it's found, that person should die. The rest would be slaves. And Yosef said, no, I'll do what you said. The person by whom it is found, he will be a slave. So Rabbi Tandler brought a halachic explanation, which is typical of a certain approach to Torah. He said, Asher Yimatzei, he said, they, the brother said to Yosef, we generally mean, interpret this to mean, God forbid that we should have done this. Rabbi Tendler said, read it as a, as a, as a rhetorical question, is it not possible that your servants did it? What makes you think that we did it? Why don't you think your servants did it? If it's going to be found by one of your servants, then he should die. But if it's found by a Jew, we should be slaves. And Yosef's response was, yes, it'll be found by you and you'll be slaves. This uh, clever analysis of Chumash was something that I wouldn't say it's pshat, but it certainly enhanced the concept of Avasatora. It certainly created a tremendous spirit in the classroom, enabled Talmidim to become closer to Rav Tendler, Mimele, close, closer to the Torah, which he so loved and taught for so many years. Yehei Baruch.
Thank you very much, Rav Tavori. In summing up and thinking about uh, the topic of the Arab Shabbat program, of the ability to be ripe and ready for Geula, I reflect upon a famous chant of Chabad that I used to hear a lot when I was growing up, we want Mashiach now. And certainly all of us want Mashiach now, and certainly all of us want the redemption to be now. But perhaps it's best not for Mashiach to come now, but for us, and for us to demand that Mashiach come now, but for us to demand of ourselves to fix our society, to fix ourselves in a way that Mashiach will come when we are ready. Because if Mashiach comes now, and now implying perhaps before we are ready, then perhaps Mashiach will need to come again. Because the Mashiach has come. There have been Gu'ulot, there have been redemptions within the history of Am Yisrael. But never was Am Yisrael ripe to understand the opportunity and to, and unfortunately it's been squandered before. And we want Mashiach when we are ready. And it's not about wanting Mashiach. We want to make ourselves ready and ripe so that when Mashiach comes, we will be able to appreciate and internalize the messages and implement them and not do Chet HaEgel. And if it means that Lo Pazon, without a hurry, we'd rather do it right and take Lo Pazon, take a little bit longer, but for it to be eternal rather than a gi'ula of chipazon that is squandered as gi'ulot in the past have been squandered again. We hope and pray that Am Yisrael internalizes the messages of Chet Egel and the mistakes that were made of gi'ulot that were b'chipazon and we learn to prepare ourselves for a gi'ula shelo b'chipazon that will be an eternal one. Shabbat Shalom.